Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. He would not come over to my place and smoke marijuana with me, but he told me as a good fiscal conservative, if I dropped a bag of weed in front of him, he would surely pick it up. On this episode of Transition Virginia, legalization of marijuana with Jen Michelle Padini of Normal. This is a public policy that Virginians support, and they would be wise to catch up to Virginians. And Matt Laszlo of the news station. America's just dumb when it comes to this, and it's because our worthless political class. The transition from decriminalization to legalization on this episode of Transition Virginia. Welcome to Transition Virginia, the podcast that examines the transition of power from Republican to Democrat. My name is Michael Pope. And I'm Thomas Bowman. Today on the podcast, Reefer Badness, The Devil's Weed, Mary Jane. Yes, we're going to talk about pot. Earlier this year, Virginia decriminalized marijuana and the Old Dominion will soon legalize marijuana. To dig into this issue, we have a dynamite panel. We're joined by the leading force behind decriminalization, the voice who made it happen, the executive director at Virginia Normal, Jen Michelle Padini. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Thomas. We're also joined by a journalist whose work you might have heard on NPR or whose work you might have read in the Daily Beast or in Rolling Stone. He's just launched a new site called The News Station that's a national alt-weekly exploring the intersection of the war on drugs, social justice, and national politics. Matt Laszlo, thanks for joining us. Anytime, brother. Great. So the big picture here for Virginia is that after years of fighting and struggling, the Commonwealth has finally decriminalized marijuana, not legalized marijuana, at least not yet, but decriminalized marijuana. Jen Michelle Padini, you were the force that made that happen. As Thomas said, what exactly does decriminalization mean for Virginia? Well, that's a very generous characterization of me, but thank you. Um, so decriminalization, and in this context, we're using it as a state policy word. It means to substitute a criminal penalty with some type of generally civil penalty. This could be a fine, it could be uh, a warning, it could be even something like community service. But generally, it means to remove a criminal penalty and substitute it with some lesser civil penalty. And Matt Laszlo, I'm wondering about the experience in other states. When other states have decriminalized marijuana, what kind of pitfalls have happened or what kind of benefits have they seen? Well, and that's the funny thing about, you know, I'm 
here in Washington, like everything these days just gets sucked into this stupidly hyperpartisan lens. So like if you talk to some conservatives from some of these states that have decriminalized or quote unquote legalized locally, you know, there's just these talking points that are out there that are stale. And one thing we're doing with our site, the new station is we're really trying to like actually do it normal has been doing for years. Uh, like really hone in on those research studies because like new science and new data and research is coming out all the time. So it's basically we've seen from most states pretty resounding, um, you know, success. There's not a ton of kids using it. That's a false talking point. Every state is actually actively working to make sure that just like alcohol, you can't imbibe unless you're 21, et cetera. And also now criminal justice reform has become a part of this. Illinois uh, was kind of a leader on that. So now a bunch of other states are going back, like Colorado and Oregon, some of the initial states to decriminalize. They are now kind of kicking themselves and saying, ooh, we put a lot of that money into local police forces, which right now, as you may have heard, uh, is not quite in vogue any longer. So I think Virginia coming in when it's poised to come in is um, going to bode well because you guys are set up to really learn from everyone else's mistakes. Jen Michelle, what kind of decrim numbers are you seeing at Virginia Normal? Decriminalization, you know, is not a, not a solution for prohibition, but it is an incremental step that, frankly, most states are willing to take before they get to legalizing adult use. And what we are seeing is roughly a 50% reduction in arrests post-decriminalization. What we aren't seeing is any shift in the disparate enforcement of those marijuana laws between Black and white Americans. Um, that, that disparity, that racial disparity in arrests still lingers after decriminalization. And in Virginia, what this translates into, hopefully, is about 15,000 fewer arrests per year. Uh, prior to this law taking effect on July 1, Virginia was spending over 100 million taxpayer dollars enforcing a policy that, frankly, they didn't support and arresting upwards of 30,000 Virginians every year for marijuana possession. So the Democrats took control of the House of Delegates and the state Senate earlier this year and took action on decriminalizing after, you know, assuming power after a generation of not being in power. This is sort of the theme of our podcast, Transition Virginia, is about that transition of power. One thing the Democrats tried to do, though, is walk this line of saying they were going to decriminalize marijuana, but they're not encouraging anyone to use it. In fact, it is still illegal I talked to House Majority Leader Charnel Herring about this. It was her bill that accomplished all of this. And this is how she explained it. Well, I mean, there's still a civil penalty. Um, I don't think it encourages uh, drug use. Um, but the reality is that people are using marijuana um, and the, the arrests are disproportionate. And so this is an attempt uh, to address that. Matt Laszlo, I'm curious about the politics of this and Democrats trying to walk this line of, you know, trying to be in favor of criminal justice reform and yet at the same time not seeming like they don't care about law and order. How do they how are Democrats trying to walk this line? When you ask me about the politics of it, I almost laugh because when you look at polling, even in Mitch McConnell, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, if you look at his home state of Kentucky, one poll that came out showed that 90% percent 
of Republicans in Kentucky supported medicinal marijuana. And so right there, this isn't a partisan issue at all. And Pew studies show that about two-thirds of Americans support legalization in one form or another, mostly medicinal. And it's not really split on a partisan line, which is why the politicians here in Washington are so far behind all these states uh, and voters on the ground who just bypassed Washington because Washington's gridlocked and worthless. So now we have 11 states and the District of Columbia that have legalized recreational weed because they gave up on Congress, like many other advocacy groups have done for a list of other issues. Well, we're not giving up here in Virginia. And and not only did we decriminalize uh, personal possession of up to one ounce of marijuana on July 1st, uh, the state also legalized participation in its medical cannabis program on July 1st. So pretty two uh, extraordinary steps forward for the Commonwealth and and all in one fell swoop uh, once that sort of trifecta of power was in place in the legislature. Jin Michelle, can I ask you a question about strategy here for decrim? Why go for decriminalization first before legalization? This is a public policy issue that had been before the legislature many, many times. I mean, it was a multi-year haul to get this issue some serious face time and, and ultimately was one that Governor Northam ended up campaigning on. So it was a priority for his administration. And uh, what we do here in Virginia is take any win we can get. <laughs> one of the topics of debate when the House of Delegates was considering this was the potential pitfalls of decriminalizing without legalizing and the precarious situation that put Virginia in. One of the Republicans who gave voice to this was Delegate Nick Rush, and I spoke to him during the session, and this is part of our conversation. So what you're doing is setting people up for failure. You're creating a larger market and then punishing the people that supply that. I mean, the the better route would be uh, either legalization or uh, what we're doing now. Do you support legalization? I haven't come to that conclusion yet. Um, I am obviously still studying that issue. It's not; It hasn't been in a committee that I've been in front of, but I would rather legalize than uh, do what we're doing now. Jen Michelle Padini, what do you make of this kind of argument we heard from Republicans, that legalization would be better because decriminalizing without legalizing is creating this gray area, but they also are not really sure if they want to support legalization or not. What do you make of that? <laughs> well, I've heard this time and time again. And listen, I totally agree with Delegate Rush. Uh, decriminalization is not a public policy solution to prohibition. What is, is legalizing and regulating responsible adult use and undoing the harms that the failed policy has inflicted on Virginians. Now, while he uh, you know, voiced his uh, perhaps unintentional preference for that policy issue, the majority of his colleagues uh, didn't support that in the 2020 session, and the administration was favorable to decriminalization. So that's the policy that we were able to advance. But we did take some, you know, what most would consider extraordinary steps forward towards advancing the policy of legalization in the next session. I would point out to Delegate Rush that this is not new information. Back when Kirk Cox was the speaker, he he appointed my former boss, Paul Krizak, to a committee studying 
marijuana policy, and they found in the Republican years that legalization is far easier and far less complex with far fewer disparities than decrim, which you still have to have some kind of code for a criminal threshold over an ounce. To your point earlier, Jen Michelle, about there still being a disparity, these are all impacts that the legislature knew would happen. Yeah, they absolutely are. Because as you mentioned, in 2017, the Virginia State Crime Commission did conduct a study on decriminalization and came to those same policy conclusions that this is a minor step and it's a step that will reduce criminalization, but it, it won't address the systemic application of these laws, the systemically unjust application of marijuana laws. But Jim Michelle, is there a bill in Congress in the United States Capitol building right now that's an actual legalization bill or aren't all of them kind of technically decriminalization bills? And what's that difference? Look, like when we talk about state policy and federal policy, we may now be using uh, inadvertently similar terms, but <sighs> federal legalization is really the same as federal decriminalization for all intents and purposes. Uh, the only way the United States can legalize marijuana, as it were, at the federal level is to decriminalize marijuana at the federal level. And that means to remove marijuana from the Federal Controlled Substances Act and allow states to set their own policies free from federal interference. You know, one of the members of the Virginia delegation who has been who was in favor of this in the past was former Congressman Tom Garrett. Uh, who was an advocate for removing marijuana from the controlled substances schedule uh, when he was in Congress. Of course, he's not in Congress anymore. Um, I spoke to him about this uh, when he was in Congress, and this is what he told me. The reality of a Schedule One controlled substance definition is no redeeming medical use. That's detached from science and reality. We know that there are areas, whether it's digestive intolerance and dealing with chemotherapy, chronic pain management, uh, intractable epilepsy, glaucoma, that marijuana and marijuana derivatives can help. Matt Laszlo, do you miss Congressman Garrett? I do. And I'm thinking of the anecdote when he told me, uh, you know, he had some struggles with substance abuse, but he did tell me he would not come over to my place and smoke marijuana with me. But he told me, as a good fiscal conservative, if I dropped a bag of weed in front of him, he would surely pick it up. <laughs> I miss Tom. <laughs> I miss him, too. <laughs> Michael, do you want to take a break and then we can come back and we'll talk about legalization? Sounds good to me. All right. Well, let's do that. We've got Jen Michelle Padini with Normal. We've got Matt Laszlo with the news station. We'll be right back. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hey, you. Yes, you. You're listening to Transition Virginia right now, and you're probably a fan of the podcast, right? Well, then rate and review, like Trevor Sutherland. One star. The only time I listen is when I'm on. 
Hmm, that's not really what I was thinking. Well, how about this review from Richard Krause? This piece of shit podcast, I wouldn't even rate one star. Come on, listeners. I know you can do better than that. Hit the pause button right now and give us a quick review. And we're back on Transition Virginia. We're talking about marijuana, decriminalizing marijuana, which Virginia has already done, and potentially even legalizing marijuana, which Virginia is on the verge of doing. Jim Michelle Padini, there is a study that's going on right now that's going to be completed later this year in advance of the upcoming General Assembly session that is about legalization. And it's not about whether or not legalization should happen. It's about how legalization should happen, right? Walk us inside of that study and what we can expect from it. Well, I think you you nailed it right there. It, it is, in fact, how Virginia might best go about legalizing adult use. It is not a, a whether the Commonwealth should or shouldn't, or whether marijuana is good or bad. It's just what is really the best policy approach for the state of Virginia. For example, what's the best tax rate for cannabis in the Commonwealth? We don't, of course, want it to be taxed so high that it simply re-incentivizes engaging with the illicit market. Then you also want it to you know, have a tax benefit to, to the state. What might be the best number of retail sites for the state of Virginia? What's the appropriate regulatory structure? We already have vertical licenses issued in the state for medical providers, there's not really an appetite to maintain this vertical requirement. And, and something that's um, very specific in this study is a call to look at what the state of Illinois did. So every state, you know, presumably tries their best with legalization. And, and we seem to be getting better and better each iteration that we, we see unfold. And the state that seems to have gotten it at least the most right up to this point is Illinois because they were very thoughtful and specific and in including a restorative justice component to the, their bill. So the study does ask for a specific look at Illinois and a look at how Virginia will include restorative justice from the get-go so that like other states, we are having to go back and say, oh, we forgot about people with criminal records. We should probably expunge those. Hmm. All right. So on that topic with criminal records, so what are we going to do with expungements of marijuana-related felonies, particularly in cases where someone pled to, say, felony possession as part of a deal not to be charged with something more violent? Should the expungement process be automatic, or should we consider something more similar to McCullough's expedited restoration of rights? Hmm. Expungement is an issue that the General Assembly attempted to tackle in the special session. And ultimately, they weren't able to reach any sort of consensus. Uh, the Virginia State Crime Commission did a study on expungement, and their policy recommendations were in support of an automated expungement process. Virginia is one of eight states that doesn't have true expungement. And what was important about the proposal that came out of Virginia State Crime Commission is ultimately carried in legislation by Leader Herring, is that it also contained the funding necessary to update uh, the infrastructure and equipment in the state of Virginia. 
so that we could even have a process like that in place. We don't have the technical capability for that right now. Now, the Senate put forth a different expungement proposal, one that we've seen versions of for years that outlined a very limited set of, of infractions and uh, required uh, petition-based expungements. And, and the House and the Senate weren't able to agree on who had the better proposal. And so Virginians got uh, hung out to dry, essentially, to, until another session can potentially look at this expungement. So when we do draft the adult use measure, we're going to have to be very creative in how we look at addressing past records. What solutions can we possibly provide when we're in a state that really lacks the ability to, to do any comprehensive expungement? You know, that House-Senate conflict is really interesting, and it, it's intractable because the House is really wanting this automatic expungement process. Mm -hmm. And what they are trying to avoid is any sort of petition process. The Senate wants the opposite. They want a petition process. They don't want it to be automatic. And Charnel Herring has made the, the point where if you create this petition process, you're also going to create a market of lawyers who specialize in the petition process. And then once you've created that market of lawyers, you will never be able to get rid of the petition process because they will be a powerful lobbying force. Um, so we've seen this intractable debate here between the House, which is totally pushing and standing by this automatic expungement process versus the Senate, which is, for the most part, rejecting the idea of automatic expungement. Um, Matt Laszlo, I'm sure other states are, are also trying to figure out the best way to move forward with expungement of old marijuana convictions. What does the field look like here in terms of, can Virginia look to other states that maybe they've figured this thing out? Well, on that real quick, I was just going to say, it sounds like this is just a Win, win, win for the economy. The lawyers are going to make money. The legislature is going to be in longer. So that's going to keep people down there in Richmond working more. And then obviously the dispensary workers and growers. So I see all positives. Uh, a little tongue in cheek. But yeah, when it comes to expungements, take a state like Florida, where the people, literally the will of the people, they came out in 2018 and they said, we want nonviolent drug offenders to be able to vote, to get their citizenship back. And then what happened? Boom, state legislature came in and put additional hoops and hurdles. So now you're having some former convicts down there who are broke. They have no money because the state government or the federal government literally took their life away for consuming things or selling things that are now legal. And talking to AOC earlier this month, she said, these are entrepreneurs, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, New York. She said, these people who are locked up are the actual entrepreneurs of the 90s because they were selling weed, which now the majority of states have legalized in one form or another. So it's interesting. I think nationally, that debate is kind of just starting. And it's so sad. Like, remember all the protests? Remember all the violence we saw? police on African-Americans um, this summer. Think about it. Like that is now forgotten from the collective American conversation. Like there's something, and I'm a media professor, like I just long for America's attention span because we've heard African-Americans for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And now after giving them what, 
a month or two in cable news, we've now moved on as a nation. And I think that's the problem. I think it falls on all of us to keep the conversation focused there. You know, one issue with legalization that the states are eventually going to have to grapple with here is there's this interesting tension between federal law, where marijuana is illegal, versus state laws where marijuana is legal. So there's this tension. The federal law says it's illegal. The state law says it's legal. I talked to Congressman Jerry Conley about this, and this is how he talked about that issue. We treat marijuana as if it's the most dangerous drug on the planet. It is not. And clearly the states are no longer accepting that federal law and that federal guidance. Matt Laszlo, are states abandoning federal guidance? Yeah. I mean, the feds have given nothing. All we've seen in the past couple of administrations, and I was just reminded this editing a profile of Kamala Harris, Barack Obama sent federal officials in 2012 in to states to disrupt and dismantle their medical marijuana facilities. By the end of his administration, he kind of changed slowly with the American people. And we had the coal memo, which was supposed to protect states, you know, their own marketplace. Then Jeff Session comes, he tears it up. Then Cory Gardner, senator from Colorado, gets him to reinstate it. So basically all we've seen, all of that jumbled nonsense is me describing what Washington has done for the states. So yeah, the states have said, peace, we don't need you, Washington. Granted, the federal government does have lots of power and lots of guns and hardware and stuff we don't want to think about. And they have the courts and all that. But no, the states have completely bypassed. Even I was talking to the former chairman of the Agriculture Committee in the House, Frank Lucas, a uh, Republican from Oklahoma. He said every bank in his state uh, is on board. They have medicinal marijuana legal in Oklahoma, which is one of the reddest of red states. Marijuana is the most popular thing and most bipartisan thing in this nation. And yet our political class is afraid of it because they're stuck in this stupid Nixonian war on drugs, prohibitionist era, reefer madness. Like they're stopping the DEA and academic institutions, research institutions from giving us good quality scientific data. Because guess what? I'm a cigarette smoker. Let me put it out there. Don't smoke. It's stupid. But I can guarantee you smoking marijuana is worse for your lungs than consuming it through an edible. But guess what? Consumers do not have that information from the FDA, from HHS. Like, it's just backwards. America's just dumb when it comes to this. And it's because our worthless political class and that's where I'm biased. I don't like either party. <laughs> <laughs> Jen Michelle, did you have any quick follow-ups on expungement? I did, uh, to Michael's point about there being a powerful lobby. <laughs> uh, mm. Not only are they, they a powerful lobby, these attorneys, they're members of the legislature and they're chairs of committees that hear these bills. Uh, so there, you know, admittedly seems to be a conflict of interest potentially there. But listen, if Virginia, hmm. Virginians are going to continue electing these people to represent them. They're going to continue to get the, the same results. Um, and, and as far as, you know, should it be automated or, or should it be petitioned? Virginians have already paid their debts for these offenses. 
so mm. why should they have to then repay again to have it removed from their records? Just to put a button on that, uh, the point that you're making there, Jen Michelle Padini, is that Virginia lawmakers are famously part-time. It's a part-time legislature, and the reason for that is because it's designed so these people have day jobs. They could be a farmer, they could be a lawyer, they could be a doctor, they could be a dentist, and they bring that professional experience to the table when they talk about laws at the Capitol building. So the point you're making there is these same lawmakers who are saying, no, don't make the process automatic for expungement. You have to have a petition process where you get lawyers involved and you petition. Those same lawmakers who are advocating for a petition process are also, when they're not at the Capitol building, lawyers who will be part of that newly created cottage industry for creating petitions to get expungements off of the records. Is that what you're saying, Jim Michelle Patini? That is exactly what I am saying, Michael Pope. <laughs> Wait, and are you both telling me I should have gotten a law degree? <laughs> if you wanted to be rich, but instead you went into journalism. Who, rich, <laughs> if you wanted to be in a hundred grand worth of debt. <laughs> Perhaps if you wanted two to be a quote citizen lawmaker, you know. <laughs> so we've got citizen lawmakers in Virginia. We also have a whole lot of work groups. Now, Jim Michelle Padini, you're on one of those work groups on marijuana legalization. And there was a recent discussion about that work group during a committee hearing. And one of the most colorful members of the state Senate, Bill Stanley, had this to say about the work group. With regard to this uh, marijuana decriminalization work group, um, will there be samples? And if so, will snacks be served? <laughs> uh, Not until it's legal. Okay. <laughs> so, Just asking for a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jen Michelle Padini, explain what the work group did and what the meetings were really like. So <laughs> I think Bill made that joke just for me. Um <laughs> As part of the decriminalization legislation, we added enactment language that ordered some number of secretaries to convene a legislative work group. That's what Senator Stanley was speaking to, and I am a member of the work group, and it has very similar objectives to what we outlined in the legislation that initiated the JLARC study. And so it isn't a, should Virginia legalize marijuana? It is a, how should Virginia go about it? And what are the major policy considerations that we would like to address in such legislation? And ultimately the work group ended up forming three subcommittees, fiscal and structural subcommittee, legal and regulatory subcommittee, of which I'm a chair, and the health impact subcommittee. And all the subgroups tackled their certain topics, and, and then the work group would, would meet as a whole to hear the feedback from the subgroups and come to some, not necessarily policy directives, but, but statements outlining, here is what Virginia should consider when drafting this legislation. Thank you again, Jen Michelle Padini with Normal and Matt Laszlo at the news station. We'll be right back with question time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you want to benefit from pay to play, now you can by joining Transition Virginia's exclusive Patreon community. Chip in as little as $3 to help us produce this podcast. Sustaining members get their questions asked on the show, which means you know the next guest before the episode comes out. So if you want us to ask your questions, or even if you just want to support the show, hop over to TransitionVirginia.com and click the orange button to become a Patreon patron today. And we're back on Transition Virginia. We're talking about marijuana decriminalizing it, legalizing it, and it's question time, where we take questions from you. If you have any questions for Transition Virginia, hit us up on Twitter. You can send us an email. You can join our Patreon community, um, where you can support the work we do here on the podcast. And in fact, our first question comes from one of our Patreons, Pete Gibson of Gibson Printing, Virginia's favorite union printer. He asked this question. I'll open it up to the panel. What role is there for Virginia tobacco companies to play in legalization? And will there be incentives for former tobacco farmers to grow Virginia Kush? (laughs) What role is there for tobacco? Look, I don't think anyone is really jazzed about the idea of Altria dominating cannabis in the Commonwealth. Ultimately, that may one day be a reality, as long as it remains. Uh, federally illegal, I think we're going to see legalization in Virginia roll out very similar to the way it has in other states where it's not, you know, (laughs) titans of industry, you know, perhaps outside of those multi-state operators that are already in the cannabis space. And, And will there be a role for Virginia's tobacco farmers? For those folks, absolutely. Equity can be looked at through a very large lens, and and part of that conversation, that equity conversation here in Virginia, uh, and specifically within the Virginia Marijuana Legalization Work Group, is about that broader that broader question of of equity in life, not just about equity licenses for those who may want to work in the cannabis industry, but how can we provide opportunity and restorative justice to all of those who've been impacted by the failed policy? How can we incentivize opportunity for Virginians and Virginia farmers are certainly part of that. And to piggyback on that, but also to take it away from big tobacco. And let's just go straight at the jugular of big pharma, which let me just uncynically say has bought and paid for uh, both Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill. We're now starting to see even Purdue Pharma members. I've heard, and I haven't done this story yet, but members of the Sackler family are, are investing in marijuana companies, have tried to take the 10 or whatever billion dollars that they hid from the families who they killed with their opioids, with their Oxycontin. They're now trying to get into... Um, the cannabis market. And so like there is fear within the industry of, for lack of a better term, the conglomerization uh, of the industry, you know, the big takeovers. Um, People on Wall Street at the start of the recession 
And all these VC capital firms were literally thinking like, ooh, uh, after a few months, this is going to be the time to buy all these cannabis firms. Well, what happened? We've seen sales spike. Because when people are sitting at home, I guess they like a joint or a bowl or an edible. Um, so sales have been up. So all these firms have had to like rethink that just rabid capitalistic approach, which I'm fine with capitalism. I want people to make money. But these pharmaceutical companies and big tobacco as well, these companies that have killed hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens now want to get in on this just to, I don't know, to feed their bottom line. But I'm nervous about that because I don't think these companies or even industries have proven themselves to be good actors who actually care about Americans. Well, many people in the marijuana industry actually do. This is medicine for millions of Americans right now. While I don't disagree with you, Matt, I'll remind our listeners that we should all be so fortunate as to one day have the luxury of choosing between Marlboro Greens at the corner store and um, craft cannabis at the boutique dispensary and pharmaceuticalized cannabinoids at CVS. Amen. I just want those companies owned by the people currently in prison. And I know you agree with me on that. Okay, we could keep exploring the Garden of Eden forever, but let's (laughs) go to our next question here uh, from Sarah Graham Taylor. Sarah is the lobbyist for Alexandria City, and she has a question that comes in through Twitter at Sarah Taylor OKC. She points out that Alexandria's Substance Abuse Prevention Commission brought something to her attention. She wants to know, will the, quote, social host, unquote, liability law extend to marijuana. Okay, the social host liability law, I just looked it up. Um, Google Google's a wonderful thing. It states in part that anyone who furnishes or sells alcohol to a minor is guilty of a misdemeanor. And if the subsequent consumption of the alcoholic liquor by the minor is a direct and substantial cause of that person's death, then um, there's criminal penalties. So, uh, so th- what they're asking is, you know, parents who give weed to minors, are they going to go to jail? Some many decades ago, Normal adopted what are called the principles of responsible cannabis use. And the first point in that is adults only. Cannabis consumption is for adults only. It is irresponsible to provide cannabis to children. Amen. And that's industry-wide. Like it's not even a, I'd almost call it a red herring. This is something that opponents bring up. Nobody in the industry wants kids consuming this stuff, just like we don't want kids consuming alcohol. All right, Sarah, if you've been listening, it sounds like Alexandria's Substance Abuse Prevention Commission needs new members. Amen. (laughs) Activate Virginia on Twitter, at Activate Virginia, wants to know, should legislators pass an advisory referendum this coming session that would put legalization and taxation on the 21 November ballot to demonstrate public support? No. Mm. I don't disagree with you, Jen Michelle. Why no? (laughs) That's nothing but a stall tactic. Virginians Mm. have been vocal in their support for legalizing responsible use of marijuana by adults. I I don't see how a referendum does more than illustrate what poll after poll after poll has already demonstrated. All right. Our next question comes from Bill in Richmond. He wants to know how national policy from a President Biden might influence the legalization process in Virginia. Any thoughts on that? 
it won't. The Virginia legislature is not swayed by the policies of neighboring states or frankly, even the federal government. Virginia, like the majority of United States and territories, is in violation of uh, federal law by legalizing medical cannabis and decriminalizing personal possession. So federal policy doesn't seem to be impeding progress here. Progress has been slowed, but not because of the federal government. And I would only add, whoever the next president is, is going to be a teetotaler, uh, whether it's Biden or Trump. So on this, whatever happens in 2021 and beyond, we're going to need the Congress to move the White House. And we've seen that a little bit. We've seen the rank and file lawmakers on Capitol Hill move Speaker Pelosi at the start of this year. I asked uh, Majority Leader Steny Hoyer from Maryland if he'd ever talked to Pelosi about cannabis after they'd she had been speaker again for one year, and he told me, no, never come up. So one reason we've seen Congress and especially House Democrats move on, whether it's Safe Banking Act to allow cannabis firms into the financial marketplace, or whether it's their movement on the MORE Act, which would decriminalize nationally and invest some of that money back in the communities hit hardest by the war on drugs. The only reason that party leaders are even bringing that to the fore. And this is Democrats, mind you, is because of the rank and file. So with Biden or Trump or any of these other septuagenarians uh, running this nation, uh, they're going to need some pressure from younger folks and also just people of all ages who consume and care about this stuff. Or if they have a child with epilepsy who needs this so their baby stops having these disgusting seizures, hundreds sometimes. Guess what? Cannabis helps with that. They're also going to need a pathway to bring these bills to hearings in in mm-hmm. the House and the Senate. And and while that may be true in in the United States House of Representatives right now, it is not true in the United States Senate. Those bills are not being heard. Hmm. Paul in Dumfries, Virginia, has two questions. He wants to know whether individuals will be allowed to grow plants at home for personal use, like in D.C. And he also wants to know. If Virginia legalizes, should minority-owned small businesses get preference to open up over big businesses like Altria? To the first point, yes. Personal cultivation is a big issue for Virginians. We hear it time and time again. And uh, Normal offered incredibly vocal support in favor of such a provision, uh, both to JLARC and during the work group meetings and opportunities for Virginians for those impacted by marijuana prohibition should absolutely be baked into the licensing structure of adult use and a future medical expansion. And on that second question, when it comes to minority businesses, this is where, you know, I'm a professor, so I play devil's advocate. This is where Republicans are raising some interesting questions, quasi-objections, because what we've seen in the House Actually, we've seen in the Senate, too. So take Elizabeth Warren. I sat down with her six or four years ago to talk about her bill, the States Act, with Republican Cory Gardner, a Colorado senator who's embattled. One thing that was pointed out to me during uh, the Democratic presidential debates, Elizabeth Warren never discussed her bill, the States Act, which would just be a blanket. Federal government decriminalizes. Each state picks on their own. 
The only thing Elizabeth Warren would talk about was Cory Booker's Marijuana Justice Act, which is progressive, which wants to reinvest money in the communities hit hardest by the war on drugs, you know, left blighted, families ripped apart, kids, sons, moms, etc., in jail for decades for stuff that's now legal on the outside. So one thing Republicans are saying is that they're still more in line, like they can stomach at this point, the States Act. But one thing Democrats are saying is, well, the States Act was six years ago, and six years ago, it was already five decades behind, <laughs> you know? So we're actually starting to get a finer point on these debates, and it's about time Congress started talking about these real issues because we have millions of African-Americans and Latinos locked up for the same thing. Me and my friends did it country clubs. All right. Our next question comes from Alex in Fairfax, and he's wondering about the House-Senate dynamics here. So we've got Democrats who are leading the House and Democrats who are leading the Senate, but they're really kind of different breeds of Democrats. So Alex in Fairfax wants to know what will happen when there's this debate on legalization in the Senate, and the Senate elections are not until 2023, what resistance we might see from Senate Democrats. Jen, Michelle Padini, I'll throw the question to you. If we're going to have a few Democratic senators in Virginia that are not as that are not ready to endorse legalization uh, wholeheartedly, that that's something we may actually have to contend with. My question to them is going to be how much do they like being reelected? Why do they like standing on the wrong side of history? This is a public policy that Virginians support, and they would be wise to to catch up to Virginians. By that same token, we have a number of Republican senators who are very supportive of legalization and kind of the inverse, I think, in the in the House, where the House we have, I would expect, generally party line support in the House um, when it comes to Democrats and, and then, then definitely some um, Republicans who are interested in it as well. Um, well, all right. That's it for this episode. We had a lot of fun. Jen Michelle Fadini with Normal. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Matt Laszlo, same to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, if you have comments or questions about what you just heard, or maybe you only want to tell us what you think, write an email and send it to us at transitionvapodcast at gmail.com. We might read it on the air. Subscribe to Transition Virginia anywhere pods are cast. Follow the transition team on Twitter at TransitionVA. And find us on the web at transitionvirginia.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe so you can enjoy our next episode of Transition Virginia. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.